You are listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on the last Sunday of Epiphany, February 23rd, 2020. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany, uh, and I thought we might just begin by remembering what Epiphany is all about in the first place. Uh, If you look in the dictionary, the word epiphany means a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. That sounds like a very technical definition, and in fact it is. It continues to say it's an appearance or manifestation, especially of a divine being. Uh, So we get a little bit closer to the the center of the target there. Uh, But we use the word epiphany uh, sort of in one way as a a light bulb moment when everything kind of finally crystallizes in your head and and you see it clearly for the first time. Uh, But we also mean it when we have these experiences where God reveals himself to us. And of course, Jesus is the ultimate version of this because Jesus is God in human flesh. He enters into the creation. He takes on human flesh. He becomes fully man in addition to being fully God. And so in the season of Epiphany, we remember certain things from the Bible that remind us of the fullness of who Jesus is as both fully man, which people could see, but also fully God at the same time. And perhaps the ultimate of these experiences is what happens today in the story of the transfiguration. But before that, I want to remember with you uh, a cartoon from my childhood, which has been revived as so often things are being revived today in the movie theaters, and that is the Transformers. Do you remember seeing Transformers on on television? Uh, Yes, of course. And these new movies are coming out in in much more lifelike detail, no longer 
cartoons, but now the, the realistic kind of uh, computer-generated cartoons. Uh, but maybe you saw a commercial for Walmart recently uh, where they're advertising that new grocery pickup service, the, the curbside thing where you just pull in and they put all your groceries in. The, they were doing this in conjunction with the Transformers, and so there's this wonderful advertisement with a, a giant robot running towards the Walmart store, and then all of a sudden it transforms into a car by folding up in on itself, and then parks in a parking space, and a, a lovely girl from Walmart walks out and puts all of the groceries in the car, and it, it takes off and goes away. That's a little bit like what we're seeing in Jesus today. Jesus is not a transformer, but what transformers do is they, they transform from one thing to another. They look like a car or they look like a truck, and then all of a sudden they unfold and you start to see what they are in all of their fullness. They're not just merely a car or a truck, they're also this, this robotic kind of a creature. Similarly, Jesus doesn't just appear to be a man, nor is he just pretending to be God or just appearing to be God, he's both of those things at the same time. And so in this moment of transfiguration, when he's up on the mountain with Peter and James and John, and he starts to shine like the sun with beautiful, bright radiance, that is Jesus in all of his full glory, both fully God and fully man, revealing the fullness of who he is. Not just a great teacher, but also the Son of God and God himself. And the readings this morning show us two very different but connected encounters with God, epiphanies with God, experiences of God on mountaintops. And they show us what these two different experiences mean for us in our lives. So before we dig into Jesus, we're going to go backwards into the Old Testament to this story we read about Moses on the mountaintop. This comes in the book of Exodus. Uh, the Israelites have left Egypt. They are wandering in the wilderness, and God is ready to give his law to Moses. And so he calls to Moses and tells Moses exactly what to do. You are to take Joshua with you, and you are to go up on the mountain that I will show you. And so Moses leaves instructions behind for Aaron and her, the, the people who are going to be in charge while he's away on the mountain. And he takes Joshua with him, and they go to the mountain. And first of all, the mountain is covered in a thick cloud for six days. And out of that cloud, after six days, God tells Moses to climb the rest of the mountain. And so he goes up, and now God appears to him in the form of a consuming fire. That'd be pretty impressive, huh? Can you imagine that? I mean, Moses saw God in the form of a burning bush that didn't burn up when he was first called into ministry. Now he goes up onto a mountain and God appears in all of his fullness, all of his glory as a consuming fire. And then Moses listens to God. It says that he was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, just listening to the voice of God, having conversation with God, being with God enjoying God's presence in all the fullness of his glory. And at the end of a bunch of chapters, we go from chapter 24, where this encounter happens, all the way to chapter 31, we hear more and more about what God's plan is, particularly for uh, how he wants to be worshipped. So we hear uh, about the things that God wants people to give for the sanctuary, for the building of the tabernacle. 
and the Ark of the Covenant, and the table for bread, and the golden lampstand, and the tabernacle. And it just keeps going and going and going for like seven chapters. The altar of incense, the consecration of priests, the bronze basin. And then we get to chapter 31. And at the very end of chapter 31, he talks about the Sabbath, God's command that Uh, that you should work for six days and then take a day of rest on the seventh day. And then in verse 18, it says, and he gave to Moses what he had finished speaking, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So you remember the, the, you know, Charlton Heston coming down the mountain with his two tablets. This is where the tablets come from. They are two tablets of stone written by the finger of God himself. And it says back in chapter 24, where we started, that God revealed to him all of the commandments and all of the law. And that's what was written on these two tablets of stone, all of the commandments and all of the law. Not just the Ten Commandments. There was a lot more on the tablets than just the Ten Commandments. There were all of the 613 laws of the Old Testament written on these tablets of stone. Everything that God wanted the people to know to be his people, separate, set apart for him, consecrated and holy. They explained how to dress. They explained what to eat, what not to eat. No bacon, I'm sorry. How to stay ritually clean and what sacrifices to offer, both sacrifices of thanksgiving and sacrifices of atonement for our sins. Everything they needed to know was in these commandments. And after 40 days and 40 nights with these tablets of stone written by the finger of God, Moses comes back down the mountain to go bring these tablets of stone to God's people. And what does he find when he gets down the mountain? Two golden calves that Aaron, his brother, the high priest, the one who he had given charge of the people to in his absence, Aaron makes two golden calves, idols. And he says, these are the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Oh my goodness, absolutely not. This is exactly what God said not to do. I mean, you can go straight to the Ten Commandments and it says not to do it right there. It was clear that they were to worship God and worship God only. And so Moses gets down the mountain, he sees these golden calves, he grinds them, he burns them, he makes the people drink water. That it, It's bad. It's just a bad scene. But he also takes these tablets of stone and he throws them down and smashes them. He has to go back up on the mountain another time to get new tablets of stone uh, because, he, because of what happened. The people sinned against God. Now, when Moses comes down the mountain, he's surprised by what he finds. Do you think God was surprised? No, I don't think so. Do you think that God is surprised when you sin and turn against him? No, I don't think so. Do you think God is is walking around in heaven and saying, oh, oh my goodness, look what Chris did now? No, nothing that we do is a surprise to God. These golden calves weren't a surprise to God. And nothing that you do in your life is a surprise to God. And so while we might try to hide our sin... There's nothing that we can hide from God. God knows about it already. God knows about it before we even do it. There's no surprises to God. Let's jump ahead to the book of Matthew. Now we see Peter and James and John going up another mountain, two mountains. 
And in this mountain story, Jesus is transfigured. His clothes become dazzling white. His face, his countenance changes. It reveals his glory in all of its fullness. Not just man, but also fully God at the same time. You can't imagine what that would have looked like. Just dazzling white. And in the midst of this, as Jesus is transfigured, two other people appear. People that had not walked up the mountain with Peter and James and John and Jesus. And those two other people are Moses, who we just read about in the Old Testament, and Elijah. Now what you need to know is these two mountain experiences are separated by more than a thousand years. Moses has been dead for a long time as has Elijah been dead for hundreds of years at this point. But here they are with Jesus, standing on the mountain in the midst of Jesus' glory. When we go to Malachi, the very last verse of the Old Testament says a little something about Elijah. Malachi says the words of the Lord to the people, saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So these last verses of the Old Testament were held in the people's minds. And they knew that before the Messiah would come, that Elijah would come. Now we're going to get, you, you can talk about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was Elijah All of that's true as well. But what I want you to know today is that as Elijah appears on the mountain with Peter and James and John, imagine for a moment what they're thinking as they see the glory of Jesus revealed, as they see Moses and Elijah, as they remember this verse, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So what do they think is about to happen? The great and awesome day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. And so they think this is the beginning of the revolution. The day of the Lord is here. We better set up some booths. And so they say, Jesus, it's good that we're all here together. Why don't I'll just make you some shelters here? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is going to be great. And so what Peter has in his head is all of a sudden, these are, these are here, there's Jesus, he's the, he's the king, and then, you know, Moses and Elijah, they could be generals, and we're going to amass an army on this mountain, and then we'll march down the mountain, and we'll kick out the Romans, and everything's going to be just the way it's supposed to be. The great and awesome day of the Lord is here. But Jesus has something else in mind. Just after Jesus makes this, or Peter makes this suggestion, This cloud, remember the cloud that covered Moses and his mountain? Now we see, again, a a cloud covering this mount of transfiguration. And out of the cloud, the voice of God. And what does it say? It says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. We would do well to heed these instructions, because they're the same instructions for us as they were for Peter and James and John. And then all in a moment, just as suddenly as all of this had taken place, 
Jesus looks like he did before. The cloud disappears. And Jesus said, it's time to go down the mountain. There's no army. There's no general. There's just King Jesus and the memory of this transfiguration. And what Jesus says to them is this. He says, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now hold on here. We were just talking about an army. We were just talking about a victory. We were talking about a revolution. We were talking about kicking out the Romans. That's why Moses and Elijah were here, right? Jesus says, no. Tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's not what they expected. It's not what they anticipated. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. It says that in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Luke, it adds the information about what they were talking about. In Luke 9.31, it says that they were talking about his, in most translations it says departure, but the, the Greek word is exodus. They were talking about his exodus. That's the same word that we get for the Old Testament book of the exodus, about how God rescued his people from the hands of slavery, from Pharaoh, and brought them into a land that he was going to show them. Jesus was about to do the same thing, but not in a way anybody expected. Because Jesus' victory would be won through death. Jesus' battle would be fought on a cross. And he would be the one who would die. But after three days, he would rise from the dead. Conquering death forever. Defeating the enemy, Satan, forever. It's not what the disciples expected but it's far better than what they were anticipating. It just took some time for God to work out the details. Now let's turn to Paul. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul uh, doesn't directly talk about either of these two incidents, but thematically, I think what his words say ties these two things together. First of all, Philippians 3, 4 through 7. We didn't read this part but it's important background information for what he's about to say. So here's this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul is saying is there are lots of people that are trying to achieve righteousness under the law of God, that same law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament on those two tablets of stone which he brings down from the mountain. But what Paul goes on to say is that all of that striving after righteousness is rubbish, refuse, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This was, was Paul's life's work, developing his own righteousness under the law, becoming blameless before the Lord according to the law. 
Can you imagine something that you have worked hard for all of your life? All of the years of your life. And then you get to a point and you throw it all out the window. You say, it's rubbish. Everything you've worked hard for. And that's exactly what Paul has done here. He's thrown out all of that former striving after righteousness. Everything that he's done under the law to try and please God. He throws it out the window. Why? Because it's worth nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. The law showed that it's impossible to maintain a righteousness by our obeying of God's rules. There's just no way you can do it. Even if you're like Paul and you you call yourself, according to the law, blameless. Why? Because even if somehow you were able to keep every letter of every law, your heart still wouldn't be right before God. You'd either be prideful about the way you're doing such a good job at keeping those laws, or you'd become resentful towards God for giving you all these rules that you have to follow and tying up all these heavy burdens upon your back. One way or the other, you're going to have things going on in your heart that don't reflect what's going on on the outside. Because all the law can do at its best is make us externally obedient. They can't help our hearts to love God. But what they can do is they can hold up a mirror to us and help us to see what we really are. There is this theory going around that you can be a good person and that we should try to be good people. We can't be good people. It's not possible on our own strength. If we try to be good people, we still won't be good people because our hearts won't be right unless they're submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means by saying that all of that work he had done to be a follower of the law, to be a keeper of the law, was rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. In verse 9, he says that he wants to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's two kinds of righteousness here. There's a righteousness that we try to earn, but there's no way we can earn it because there's no way we can achieve it. And then there's also the righteousness that comes from Jesus by faith, in which he gives us his righteousness. Kind of like a a brilliant, dazzling white garment that he takes off of himself and he puts around your shoulders. We become the righteousness of Christ. He takes away our sin. That's what he did for us on the cross. He washes it away by the blood of his cross. And he gives us his righteousness because he's the only one who could ever be perfectly obedient unto the Lord. He's the only one who ever didn't deserve death for his sins. And he's the one who received death for our sins to wash them away. Does this mean that you shouldn't bother with the commandments in the Bible? Well, no, it doesn't work like that. We still need to to try to be holy people. We still need to try to follow what the scriptures say. We still want to conform our lives to what we see in the scriptures. But the reason why we do that changes. Because under the law, we're trying to earn our righteousness before God. But through faith in Christ, we already are righteous before God. And the goal changes. It becomes something different. Paul says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
That's interesting because before he said under the law he was blameless. Now he's saying he's not already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Jesus makes us his own. He gives us his righteousness. And we seek to live into what he has made us to be. He has changed us outwardly. And then he wants to change us inwardly. He justifies us before God. That's a legal declaration saying, not guilty. Even though you are guilty, there's a legal declaration before God that says, not guilty. And yet, there's still an incongruency between that external righteousness that comes from God, from Jesus, and the internal sinfulness that still lingers in us. And so begins the process of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, transforming us and changing us from the inside out, making us into the people that God made us to be. In Ephesians, Paul talks a lot about marriage, uh, especially in chapter 5. But there's a, a brief, uh, brief verse in the midst of chapter 5 as he's talking about the relationship between husbands and wife where he compares that relationship to the relationship between Christ and the church because the church is the bride of Christ. And this is what, what Paul says about Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, the church is not that in its own strength. It can't be that in its own strength. But it becomes that because of the transformation that God enables within it. The washing with water and the word. The putting on of new bright white garments. That, they, that the church, we might be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We are all on a path towards holiness that only the Holy Spirit can accomplish in our lives. Jesus was transfigured, showing the fullness of who he actually is. We are transformed, becoming by grace what we cannot be by ourselves. Today is the last day of the season of Epiphany, which means it's also right on the heels of, or right, a, you know, we're about to enter Lent is what I'm trying to say. We're right, a, right around the corner from Lent. Lent starts this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. And uh, Lent is an opportunity for us to take stock of our spiritual lives, to examine ourselves, to see where sin has crept in and give us an opportunity to return to the Lord through repentance. But also it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to God through prayer and fasting and almsgiving. And so over the next few days, I would like you to prayerfully ask the Lord how he wants you to observe this season. What does he want you to do? Is there something that he wants you to leave behind? To give up either permanently or for a, a short time during the season of Lent? Is there something that he wants you to take on? Have you gotten lax in your spiritual disciplines? Do you need to reinvigorate your practice of, of reading the Bible and praying? Is there some other discipline that he wants you to try? Maybe it's fasting. Is he calling you to fast in some way or to abstain from certain things during this season? If you want to know more about how to observe the season of Lent, if you're curious about 
what it is that you're thinking about and you want to talk to someone about it, please come and talk to me. I'd be more than happy to talk to you about it. Um, and I will also post a video this week uh, with my perspective on fasting, and that will be in the, the weekly email, so keep an eye out for that. I'll try to get it up before Ash Wednesday, but we'll see. Um, either way, if you, if you miss Ash Wednesday and you start fasting on Thursday or Friday, it's okay. The Lord won't hold it against you. <laughs> None of these things are, again, to make us righteous before God. That's not the point of Lent. We aren't earning our holiness by engaging in extra spiritual disciplines, getting merit badges and brownie points. That's not the way Lent works. That's not the way spiritual disciplines work. Rather, they're like tools that help us form our hearts to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so they're not external laws that make us righteous. Rather, they're tools that the Holy Spirit uses to draw us closer to God, conforming our lives more and more to the pattern of his son, Jesus Christ, and transforming us into a spotless bride, arrayed in dazzling white garments, presented before the Lord, holy and blameless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of your Son. We thank you for this vision given to us by Peter and James and John of your Son, Jesus Christ, transfigured in all of his glory. And we thank you for the message of Paul and for the transformation that you brought about in his life and for the transformation that you're bringing about in each of our lives day by day. We pray that you would draw us closer to you, that you'd help us to press on towards the upward goal of the call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, and that you would present us before you spotless and blameless, that we might be your holy bride. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg, Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.